This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. If you'd please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We will continue from where we left off last week, beginning at verse 22, and we will continue through the end of the chapter at verse 47. Hear now the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, you would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into, he- into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine in fellowship, in the breaking of the bread, and in prayers. 
Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord, and he blessed in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that was poured out that Pentecost day, that you would ready our hearts to receive this truth to know and to understand, to repent and trust in Christ and to live our lives ever before him as your church, whom you have called. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we looked at the descent of the Holy Spirit on Christ's people at Pentecost. The Christians were together with one accord They had been praying and waiting for the promise of Christ to be fulfilled, the one he made before he ascended. And at Pentecost, the promise came to pass. The Holy Spirit fell on them like a rushing wind and tongues of fire. They began to converse in languages they did not know. Now this scene caused a multitude to form. It got attention. And once the crowd was assembled, Peter got up, as we saw, and he addressed the crowd. We saw last week how he debunked the accusation that this came as some result of drunkenness. But instead, he taught from the scriptures. He particularly quoted from Joel chapter 2, which prophesied the coming of this day, where the Spirit would be poured out, and the day of the Lord in a certain way had already begun, and those who called on the name of the Lord would be saved. Well, today we continue with Peter's address at Pentecost and the response and reaction to it. And so we will look at this text today in three points. First, there is a calling. Peter addresses the people concerning Christ and the salvation that is in him. Second, there is conversion in verses 37 through 40. The people are convicted. They are cut to the heart at Peter's words and they respond in faith. Third, there is communion in verses 41 through 47. From this multitude at Pentecost comes the Jerusalem church, and we get a look into what that church did and what it was like. So calling, conversion, and communion, these are our points for this morning. First, we look at the calling in verses 22 through 36. So after Peter finishes quoting from the prophet Joel, he turns to the proclamation of Christ. Now remember, Peter is in Jerusalem. He is in the very city where just 50 days prior, that's actually where Pentecost derives its name, it's 50 days after Passover, a mob had gathered together to demand that Jesus be crucified It was quite possible that there were even people in Peter's audience that morning that had been a part of those proceedings. So Peter explains Jesus to them as something familiar, someone they saw and heard, or at least knew about and heard about. 
He talks about how Jesus was attested by God. He was born witness by God through miracles, wonders, and signs. In the Joel prophecy from last time, that was a part of it. There would be great signs and wonders from heaven. And Jesus did many of those. He healed people. He fed people, raised the dead, and did many other great miracles. And the crowd in Jerusalem would have known They would have known about those. They would have seen and heard some of them. Again, it was only about seven weeks prior that Jesus was there, and they persecuted him and put him to death. And Peter next describes Christ's sufferings. But he describes two aspects, two angles of this suffering, both of which are very important. First, Peter says that Jesus was delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. So Jesus' suffering and death was according to God's will. It was according to God's plan and decree. It was decreed from the foundations of the earth that Christ would suffer to redeem a people for his name. So here we see God's sovereignty and we see predestination on display. But then second, we see another angle, another aspect. We see that this predestination that this prior decree of things to come does not excuse the sin on the part of those who carried it out. God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility for his sin. For Peter says in verse 23 to the crowd regarding Jesus, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now let's take a moment to think about this in terms of what is often taught and practiced in our day about evangelism and Christian witness. This is very much an evangelistic sermon. Peter is preaching Jesus to this crowd so that they might repent and believe. Now much of the decline of doctrine and practice in the church in the last half century or so has been under the auspices of the seeker-sensitive or church growth movements. And in these movements, the church and its practice and worship has been reoriented not towards the ongoing nourishment and edification and instruction of God's people, but making the church a comfortable place for unbelievers to come with the idea that if they're comfortable and they stick around long enough, they might eventually hear the gospel and believe. Now the problem is when the emphasis is on the comfort of unbelievers, what often gets lost is the necessity of convicting unbelievers of sin. Perhaps a trite way of putting it, but people have to be lost before they can be found. They have to know the depths of their sin and misery in order to know what salvation is and why they need it. So Peter doesn't get up in front of this crowd and tell them that, well, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, or... He doesn't get up and give them a practical talk and leave them with the impression that they're pretty good people and just if they had Jesus, it would make them even better. No. Peter doesn't soft pedal around sin. He doesn't try to make them comfortable and just keep them around in hopes that maybe someday he'll earn the right to tell them about Christ. No, Peter in his first public evangelistic sermon tells the assembled multitude, 
You killed Jesus. You, by your lawless hands, have killed Jesus. The church in our day is being degraded and abused by preachers who don't want to talk about sin. Don't want to talk about the law. Don't want to take sin seriously or accuse people of sin. Because if they do, they might not like it. They might not stick around. But they must hear this so that they might be convicted and repent. In the New Testament, we see that the gospel is preached. But when it is preached, it is accompanied with the pointed proclamation of law and of sin. And yet, as we see later, Peter's very accusatory and non-seeker-friendly message is effective because it is faithful and God uses it mightily by the power of His Holy Spirit. But telling these people about their evil works is not the end of the story. Because just as God purposed for Christ to suffer, He purposed to raise Him from the dead. Death could not hold the Son of God. He is the Lord of death. As we saw in John 10 some months back, Jesus had the authority to lay his life down and to take it up again. Death was defeated. Death was powerless over Christ. Peter confirms this with David's prophetic words from Psalm 16. David wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the hope of the resurrection in Christ. Many modern scholars, and the way that modern scholars seem to like to break everything they touch, try to say that in the Old Testament, people didn't really know anything about resurrection. They didn't have any hope in the resurrection. But it's very clear from words like these from David and how Peter interprets them and explains them that David did. Maybe he didn't know exactly where and when and how his resurrection would come. But through types and shadows, he knew the resurrection hope that was in Christ who was to come. David said with confidence that the Lord would not leave his soul in Hades, in Sheol, in the place where the dead go. Now this is not and cannot be David's hope in himself. That is essentially Peter's point in bringing this up. When he talks in verse 27 about how God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption, David couldn't be writing about David. Because David would die, and David knew he would die. He knew, for instance, from God's covenantal word to him that his descendants would take his throne after him. That means he was going to die. He wasn't going to be on his throne anymore. Peter explains the importance of David's words starting in verse 29. As that crowd would have all known, being that they were a Jewish crowd, they knew who David was, and they knew that he was dead and buried. David was, after all, among the many other things, he was a national hero. They all knew who he was. He was their great king, what he did, and also what happened to him. It would be like if I were talking to you about George Washington. You know who he was. You also know that he's dead. He's been dead for a long time. In fact, you can go visit his tomb at Mount Vernon in Virginia. Well, David's tomb was right there in Jerusalem. Anybody who wanted could go see it. 
If they opened up that tomb, there would have been bones in it. So Peter says David's words in Psalm 16 cannot be about himself. But David was a prophet. Not only was he a prophet, but he had received God's covenantal revelation. He had received the, the word of one of God's covenantal administrations, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. He was told how... <clears throat> He was told how one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. And that is what Peter is talking about. That is what Peter is appealing to, specifically 2 Samuel 7, 12, and 13, which says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, this is God speaking to David, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David, in those words, was foretold about Christ who was to come, would not only sit on David's throne, but would be David's own hope for resurrection. Because of what Christ would come and accomplish, David knew that God would not leave him among the dead. He would be raised up at the last day. Because Jesus himself was raised up from death on the third day, his soul was not left in the place of death, nor did his flesh see corruption. He was the fulfillment of what David saw in Psalm 16. And Peter is bearing witness to this crowd that the very Jesus that they crucified, that they persecuted, that they saw die and helped to make die, he was alive and they had seen him. Not only this, but Jesus had ascended to the Father, having promised to pour out the Holy Spirit on them, which has now happened at Pentecost. To drive home this point about what David knew and understood about Christ, Peter quotes again from Psalm 2. David could not be talking about himself there either, because David had not bodily ascended into heaven, but he foresaw one who would when he wrote, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David didn't do that. But Christ has ascended into heaven, one who was also David's Lord and God, and yet who sat at the right hand of God. And Christ remains there while his enemies are subdued, while the gospel goes forth and the full number of his people are brought in. As I said last time, Pentecost brings in a new era of history, the church age, the age of Christ's conquest. Now, this is not a military conquest or the building of an earthly nation, not because it is less than that, but because it is bigger than that. It is global. It is reaching to every tribe, tongue, and nation and subduing not only God's enemies in a particular area, but everywhere. Christ reigns now and will reign until this work is completed, and in the, enemy, in the end, his enemies will be fully and finally destroyed. And so Peter concludes his message with this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, 
whom you crucified. So there it is again. He's laying this direct accusation before this multitude of people. He has made him both Lord and Christ. So Jesus, whom they crucified, is their Lord and King. He is also Christ. He is the Messiah. He is their Savior and Redeemer. They did crucify him. The Jews of Jerusalem bear guilt for his death. And yet what Peter is putting before them is that despite their very complicity in that matter, the fact that they helped Jesus helped put Jesus to death, Jesus still could and would save them. Peter has revealed to them their sin, but also what Christ has done for their sin. It's not a very seeker-sensitive sermon. It's not one that our modern sensibilities might care for, but it sure is effective. And this brings us to our next point. After calling, we come to conversion in verses 37 through 40. So how does this crowd respond? There are other times in Scripture where the gospel was plainly and clearly preached. People are angry and they're offended and they even turn violent. We'll see this later on in Acts 7 the ordeal of Stephen. But on this day, this Pentecost day, this first official day of the church, the message by the Spirit's power is effective. The Spirit which has been poured out there uses it for the salvation of souls. And we see this response. We see that the people are cut to the heart. What they have heard has penetrated them. It has wounded them. It has convicted them. Now, this is not the only time we see this language. I mentioned Acts 7 and Stephen. We see the same thing said about the crowd there, them being cut to the heart, but that's right before they kill Stephen. The word is a sharp sword. Sometimes it subdues and sometimes it provokes. But this time, by the Spirit's power, it subdues. The people know they are guilty and they do not want to be guilty. And so they ask, men and brethren, what shall we do? And here we see the glories of God's grace. For to the very people who persecuted and killed Jesus, Jesus offers life and salvation. So Peter tells them what they are to do. First, they are to repent. What does it mean to repent? Well, some have an idea that repentance is just simply admitting that you are a sinner, confessing some sin maybe, but, but that's about it. We see this idea used and abused, for instance, in the Roman Catholic penance system. You can basically do whatever you want as long as you go and confess to the priest and then do whatever he tells you afterwards. But against things like that, our shorter catechism says, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. I can't really say it any better than that. So repentance is not merely acknowledging that sin exists or that we might have some. 
and asking for forgiveness. It is recognizing the heinousness of it, the true sense of our sin, but seeing it in light of God's mercy in Christ. And if we really understand this, it's not going to lead us into any kind of licentiousness where we think that our sins are forgiven, so we can just keep sinning and it doesn't matter. Quite contrary, true repentance marks a break with sin. Not that we are sinless when repentance, but we have that sincere purpose and endeavor. We want to put our sin away and strive for the holiness of God. So the crowd at Pentecost is told that they are to repent. They are also to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Now what this is not saying is that the baptism is the act that forgives sins. It's not teaching baptismal regeneration. The baptism, the application of water makes sins go away. But what baptism is, is it is the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. It is an outward expression of the inward reality of being born anew into Christ and his blood washing away sins. It is made effectual by the Spirit according to his will and timing. We'll see this elsewhere in Acts, for instance, when Simon the magician professes faith and then is baptized and then proves himself to be false. The early church didn't see or observe or practice any kind of baptismal regeneration. Or Peter, who gave this sermon, he also wrote elsewhere in 1 Peter 2.21 that baptism saves... And people love to say, well, Peter said baptism saves. But then Peter writes, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as the answer of a good conscience towards God. So spiritual baptism, spiritual washing is what saves, not the application of water. But also those who respond to Peter's call, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 39, Peter invokes this language of the Abrahamic covenant. He says, for the promise is to you and to your children. The promises of the covenant are not only to believers, but to their children. Just as circumcision was a sign and seal of the old covenant, and it was given not only to believers, but to their children, baptism is also administered to the children of believers. It's given to whole households. We'll see this throughout the book of Acts. And here in Acts 2, we see a strong case that the church would have understood and practiced infant baptism from the very beginning. It's not like the Baptists say that infant baptism was just some medieval corruption that the Reformers didn't go far enough in getting rid of. No, children continued to receive the covenant sign. It was just a new and unbloody covenant sign, a better sign in the New Testament. And the promise now goes further than just the family and house of Abraham, or the house of Israel. As Peter says, it now goes to those who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. We've already seen something of this, and how we saw at Pentecost, there would have been people gathered from all over the world at that feast. Jews and converts from all over that had come to worship God. And once they heard this message, once they were baptized into the church, many would go back where they came from 
and found churches there. This call is also to the Gentiles, the other nations that were previously estranged from God, that previously had no hope. As we've been seeing in Genesis, all the various ways the nations are broken off and separated from the city of God. Here at Pentecost, that is beginning to be undone. They're being brought back in. The gospel is now for them and reception into the church is for them. Then Peter, in verse 40, continues to exhort, he continues to preach to the crowd that they are to be saved from their perverse generation. They are to be delivered from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of sin and rebellion and hatred of God into the kingdom of His Son. As this is a turning of the ages, people are called to turn from this age into the age to come. But after the calling and the conversion, what comes next? Well, we come to our third and final point, communion in verses 41 through 47. So we've already seen that those who received Peter's word were baptized and more would continue to be. It's not just a few. You see in the text that 3,000 souls were added. There might also be an argument in here in favor of baptism by sprinkling or pouring because there's 3,000 people and I don't know how familiar you are with the geography of Jerusalem, but there's not a ton of water in or around Jerusalem, but that's beside the point. 3,000 people are now added to the church. They are Christians. And so we now have the establishment of the Jerusalem church. And what does this church do? But we start to see a pattern that may look familiar to us. In verse 42, we see that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So they were committed to the preaching and teaching and study of Scripture and of sound theology. We know this was how the apostles did doctrine because we've seen it before and then we see it again today. The apostles are reading and explaining and applying the scriptures. And the early church was committed to the preaching of the scriptures. We also see that this church is devoted to fellowship. The Christians were together. They were a distinct people. They had a new and distinct relationship and identity. They met together. They did things together. And next we see the breaking of bread. Now the fact that it says the breaking, instead of just breaking, that's actually really important. That's not just an English thing. That definite article, the, is also in the Greek. And what it does there is it points out that this breaking of bread is something specific. And what might that be? They were also taking the Lord's Supper. The early church was committed to partaking of the sacraments. We already saw it with baptism we see also that they take the Lord's Supper as Christ commanded them to. And then finally, we see that this Jerusalem church was committed to prayer. We hear a lot of people in the church in our day that say, we need to get back to the early church. We need to go back and do what the early church did. And they'll even do things like try to start house churches and all other sorts of interesting activities because they want to get back there. And yet, if we look at what the earliest church was doing, it's doing a lot like 
what we do now. The word, fellowship, sacraments, and prayer. They attended to the means of grace and the meeting together of God's people. But we also see more developments. We see fear. We see reverence and awe as miracles and signs and wonders were done. I already discussed this at some length last time, but just as a reminder, these are particular signs, particular gifts given for the founding of the church, for the confirmation of her message, and until the scriptures were available. And we also see here the sharing of property. We see the selling of goods and the sharing of material and financial needs. Now, some take this to mean that the early church embraced some form of communism, that they basically had communal property. That's not what's going on. People sold things, but they also kept things. Things like theft are still condemned in the New Testament, which you can't have theft if you don't have property rights. People sold things, they also kept things. They kept their goods, they kept their same occupations and jobs and so forth. But what is going on in the church as a part of its fellowship is people help each other. They care for each other within the church. And let us not neglect to notice that it, the activity is primarily within the church. It's not something done broadly or societally. It's not turning the church into some kind of charity program. It's not imposing any kind of communal sharing by force of law. But the church and its members, they help one another with their needs. And we see in verse 46 that the church continues these things day in and day out. They also continue to go to the temple. There hasn't been yet this clean break from Judaism, so they are continuing to worship God as they've been taught. And they are praising God. And as these people are going about all of these things, people start to notice. When the church does what the church is supposed to do, God can use that as a means to bring others in. People will see that and they want to be a part of it. They want to have the hope and the help and the purpose that being a part of God's people brings. And that's what happens here in Acts. We see in verse 47 that the Lord adds to their number daily those who are being saved. So, we have seen here at Pentecost in Acts 2, the inauguration and the proclamation of the church. What Christ promised in the outpouring of the Spirit, it has now come. And a people, the church, has been founded in Jerusalem, a people committed to the Word, to sacraments, to fellowship, and to prayer. So what do we do with this? Well, for one, we are called to be and to remain as that church. What they did, we are to do, and we do. And what remains for you is that if you hear this gospel proclamation that Christ died to save sinners, even the very sinners who persecuted and killed him, and yet was raised from the dead and offers life and salvation, if you hear that, and if you are cut to the heart, as that crowd at Pentecost was, do not turn away. Be reconciled to God. Repent of your sins. Receive and rest upon Christ as he is offered in the gospel. 
and you will be saved. And then you can be numbered among Christ's church as one of his people. If you are in Christ, continue as a part of his church. If you're not a part of a church, join one who does the things that God's word here describes and prescribes. I know exactly where you can find one, and apparently you do too. And the church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, will be the people of God, the people of Christ, until he returns. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. We thank you that you have built your church. We thank you for the person and work of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, that we have salvation and life and hope through him. I pray that that hope would ever be written on our hearts. And I pray that we would take this hope where it has not been heard. I pray that you would continue to add to our number. And I pray that as we live in fellowship together as your people, that we would be more and more renewed after the image of your Son until he returns. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.